Green Street Joinery and the American Craftsman Podcast are proud to partner with Montana Brand Tools. Montana Brand Tools are manufactured by Rocky Mountain Twist in Montana, USA. With numerous patents dating back to the invention of the Hexshank system by our founders, we strive to produce accessories that add precision, flexibility, and efficiency to your toolkit. In addition to woodworking tools, we produce many high-quality cutting tools that are used by the aerospace, medical, automotive, and industrial markets. Our end product has a fit and finish that is beyond comparison. Montana Brand Tools are guaranteed for life to be free of defects in material and workmanship because we build these tools with pride and determination. For 10% off your order, visit MontanaBrandTools.com and use the coupon code AmericanCraftsman. Welcome back, uh, American Craftsman. Yeah. I guess that's what we call you, listeners. Um, here we are, episode 16. American Craftsmanites. Craftsmanites. I like it. Um, yeah, here we are talking about uh, federal furniture. Yeah. I almost said empire. No, not not quite. In a, in another couple weeks. Yeah. Oh uh, well, well no, in quite some time. <laughs> now we're uh, going to talk about a couple of the most influential uh, designers and mm-hmm. a couple of builders of uh, federal furniture. Big three, we call them. It's like uh, Metallica, Megadeth, <coughs> and Anthrax. Yeah, exactly. Or wait, no. Was it Slayer? I think it was Slayer. Yeah, the big four. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> big three. Sheridan. Applewhite. Fife. Not Chippendale. No. Why is I why did I put that? One of the big three, yeah, including Chip Oh, of the eighteenth century. One of the big three English furniture makers of the 18th century. Mm. We got Sheridan, Heppelwhite, and Chippendale. So those are the big names of the, like, 1700s. Right. But if we get specifically to the federal period, we have to leave Chippendale behind. Yeah, because Fife was, well, and those are uh, English. Yeah. And Fife was. Well, he was English. But but he he was was living here. Yeah, he was. He was a New Yorker. Um, according to Wikipedia, there are no pieces. <laughs> I've heard a lot of arguments start like that. <laughs> according to Wikipedia, there are no pieces of furniture made directly by Heppelwhite or his firm known to exist. Hmm. Yeah, so that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. However, he gave his name to a distinctive style of light, elegant furniture, and reproductions have continued for centuries up to this day. Hmm. Well, so how can Heppelwhite have managed to have such influence? How could he be considered one of the big three furniture makers of the 18th century? <laughs> you, you better take that call. I have no idea who that is. They're probably calling about your, furniture, your auto warranty. Yeah. Bastards. <clears throat> so how can Heppelwhite have managed to have had such influence. Um, well, we bring it bring it straight back to his cabinet maker and upholsterer's guide. Mm-hmm. And luckily for him, well, I guess he's dead. So it's it's published posthumously by his wife in 1788. So he he probably couldn't have fathomed that he would 
be so influential. What was Hepplewhite's first name? George, I believe. George Hepplewhite. Yeah, I believe it was George. Uh, I'm not positive, but I think it was George. As you can see, I just started calling him Hepplewhite. <laughs> and let me tell you, type in Hepplewhite in and of itself was, you know, surprisingly hard. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that name. Yeah. Um, and one characteristic that's seen in many of Hepplewhite's designs is a shield-shaped back chair where an expansive shield appeared in place of a narrower splat. Now, you want to click on that link? Let's see what we got. Let's see how good my uh, my links are. There it is. Yeah. Man, this one's zoomed way in. That's pretty nice. Um, Looks like it's got those straight legs. This, the picture doesn't, oh. doesn't show at all. It's, oh. I'm trying to scroll to see yeah, the legs. I'm yeah, like, what the hell? It's the way the photos cropped. Yeah. But it looks like some pretty intricate carving in that back. I mean, it's small. Yeah, it's almost almost has like a harp kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the lyre. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. A lyre is kind of more like a small harp. Yeah, like it's... I was thinking of a lute. Okay, yes. Yeah, that's what I was uh, mistaking it for uh, in the last episode. Um, I guess that's... That inset piece, the splat, is probably carved separately and then placed into that frame. That's some some nice work. I mean, look at all those thin little pieces. Yeah. They had those nice carbide tools back then. (laughs) I know. used to just throw it on the CNC. Yeah. And then we cut it out. He'd come back. It's done. That looks like, uh, well, they, we know from uh, last episode they favored mahogany. But uh-huh. Certainly has that look. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty rich. What else we got here? Oh, uh, this is from his book, yeah. Hmm, nice sketches. Yeah, so this is basically... Not basically. This is what comes out of the book. These Ooh, high res. I had to search quite a bit to be able to actually download some of these links because mm-hmm. they were copyright protected. Shh! Don't tell anybody. <laughs> but I wanted, I wanted to um, be able to show some of the actual drawings from his his book. Yeah, look at this urn with these feathers coming out of mm-hmm. it. Yeah, there's that the famous shield shaped back on the left. Yeah, yeah, I'm mean, not digging that. No, I don't like it either, and I don't like the way the back legs are curved, and the way they relate to the front legs either. Yeah. London published, 1787 by I and J Taylor, number 56 High, Old. This one's got some uh, Looks like little carvings In the front legs Yeah I like the shape of the back of this Mm -hmm. Not really feeling this uh, Urn splat No it doesn't look very comfortable either No I don't know if this 
is caned or what? A little too early, I think, for caning. No, uh, no, no. Well, caning came out. Yeah, it was a, yeah, a long time before this. But it doesn't look very well padded, does it? No. But he's definitely uh, portraying some sort of texture there. Yeah. So this is this is what you'd get. So let's say we had our shop. Um. This is this is what we'd be working from. Yeah. And this is just broken down into sections, not no right. dimensions. And that that top view kind of shows the the curve on the sides. Mm-hmm. That's a nice piece. Yeah. Got, got a board. nice shape to it. Um looks like you're using quarter white oak over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, kind of a napkin sketch almost, wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, what are these details that they're showing? These are the how the drawers are divided up. It looks like it. I mean, that's definitely the showing the curve, which doesn't look like it'd be easy to make. So this looks like it has a another door inside of it. Yeah, with a hinge top, right? And this is divided up maybe for I don't know Lipton tea bags. There you go. K cups. That's where they put the K cups. <laughs> oh, um, it's a pretty. It, it. I don't think the drawings do it justice. It looks similar in design to some of the pieces we viewed um, last episode. Yeah. Um, the perspective and everything. Not great drawings. Um, I don't know. I think. You don't think that's yeah. good? Well, I don't know. It's all right. <laughs> it's all right. It's hard to. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. There are a lot of curved surfaces to try and display. So yeah, I don't want to be that critical. I mean, I couldn't draw something in perspective with all of those and and display all of those mm -hmm. um, radius surfaces. So, uh, pretty good. You don't see the back legs there. Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know. There's something about perspective drawings that just look always look weird. Yes. Yeah, you could see um, he picked a vanishing point, you know, somewhere. Way back here. Yeah, right there. <laughs> it probably would look worse if you picked one that wasn't, you know, centered. Mm-hmm. Maybe could have included a couple more, uh, more views. This is a, a Heppelwhite made by the Seymours. Oh, look at that. So this is one of his designs. I noticed this motif and other ones with this little band around yeah, the foot. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stone top? Yeah, yeah. I think that's epoxy. <laughs> Your That's total boat. Oh wow. The the little key to scutcheon is is an urn. Yeah, some marquetry. Um really, really nice. The Roman OG, I feel like, is just so prevalent in this uh period. Oh yeah. Um the drawer face. 
I mean, just a beautiful piece of wood. Looks like it's got some pegs. Yeah. This is, you know, tenon into the, into the leg acting as the apron and the shore front. Is is that some some inlay there? A little string inlay? Yep. All the way down. Yeah. Another contrasting. Same thing on the side. A little bit of inlay. I mean, this definitely looks like mahogany. Yep. Um, little so breadboard here. You have established cabinet makers building from the Heppelwhite sketchbook, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it shows how influential he really was and how popular his designs were for sure because it'd be like, uh, you know, somebody coming to us and say, hey, can you uh, do that uh, for us? Oh, God, don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Very little is known about Heppelwhite himself. Some established sources list no birth information. Hmm. However, George Heppelwhite was born in 1727 in Wrighton, County Durham, England. And according to some sources, he served his apprenticeship with Gillows in Lancaster. But the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography is skeptical about this. He was also a member of the London Society of Cabinet Makers. So Heppelwhite, he based himself in London where he opened a shop and died in 1786. So, I mean... If if the birth date's correct, yeah, he's sixty one. Not a long life, I guess. For that time, it was. But yeah. I'm fifty nine, so I wonder uh, what uh, religion he was, because you know they were the main record keepers. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. You see, like the Puritans, they got records going back to the fifteen hundreds <laughs> of everybody. That's right. <clears throat> and when I was looking for my own records, that was the place I found my first uh, written record Mm -hmm. uh, was when I found the church I was baptized in. They had my records there. (laughs) I called the place I got my knee surgery in like 2005. They're like, yeah, no, we don't have that. (laughs) Just like on a computer somewhere? Like, come on. Nobody saves anything except the church. <laughs> it was funny too because they said, oh, "Hang on, just a second. And they, I came back to the phone. They yeah. didn't even put me on hold. They're like, "Yeah, it's in the nineteen sixty-one file cabinet." Yeah. <laughs> so he he dies in seventeen eighty-six, and the business continued by his widow Alice. Mm. So she must have, you know, needed. Uh, to, to do this, to survive. And in 1788, she has the wherewithal to publish a book with 300 of uh, George's designs. It's a lot of designs. I mean, think about it. It's, it's, um, the, the precedent was set, I suppose, by Chippendale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some, 30-odd years earlier. So Alice is here thinking, and I got to put some 
food on the table. George left me with a bunch of tools that I can't use. Uh, what am I going to do? He was quite the go-getter. Stole Chippendale's idea. Yeah. So 1788, she publishes the book, 300 Designs. With a, with an eerily similar title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cabinet Maker and Holsterer's Guide. And Which the shop, <laughs> Chippendale's shop was the cabinet and upholstery warehouse. Yes, yes. I don't know how yeah. I feel about Alice. Yeah, Alice. Alice to the moon. I don't think I like her. So, But she published another edition in 89 and a, a third in 1990. Yeah, she's like a college textbook uh, publisher. Yes. It's not until a year after George's death that his designs start to receive recognition. Hmm. Well, some have uh, attempted to attribute the furniture design to his wife, Alice. There's no evidence that she was the original creative force behind the work beyond her publication of the reference guide after his death. Hmm. So there's there's a movement. Saying that she was the actual designer. Yeah, she did all the work. Possible. Uh, here we go. With contemporaries such as Thomas Chippendale producing pieces in a variety of styles, Heppelwhite's fame style is more easily identifiable. Heppelwhite produced designs that were slender, more curvilinear in shape, and well-balanced. There are some characteristics that hint at a Heppelwhite design, such as shorter, more curved chair arms, straight legs, shield-shaped chair backs, all without carving. That was an uncomfortable sentence. <laughs> the design would receive ornamentation from paint and inlays used on the piece. Hmm. I wouldn't have imagined that. Yeah, because uh, the although they're not actual Heppelwhites, the Heppelwhite-inspired stuff we saw was pretty heavily carved. Mm -hmm. And the painting, I mean, unless some of those little details were painted on, mm -hmm. like the black stripes and things like that. Look, here's Mac again trying to correct some. Yeah, of designs of the day. What, uh, what, what do you see wrong there? Once it changes to off, because that makes sense. Yeah, designs off the day. Well, this book, George's, or I should say Alice's, influenced cabinet makers and furniture companies for several generations, uh, which in turn influenced, uh. You know, people like, well, our predecessors, you know, and then eventually people like us. Um, so thanks to Alice, we're here today. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> All right, Heppelwhite's style often overlaps with that of British designer Thomas Sheridan, whose 1791 guidebook, like Heppelwhite's documented popular furniture designs of the day. So Sheraton's sitting around in his shop. He sees what Chippendale, Chippendale's done. Well, that's early on in his life, probably. He's saying this bitch Alice Heppelwhite's over here. Yeah. 78, 79, or I should say, what was it? It was 80. Yeah, no, it was 86, 88, 89, and 90. So 
the very next year after his his third edition, Sheraton gets on his uh, uh, horse. You want some of that Apple White money? <laughs> the slightly older Apple White style tends to be more ornate, with substantial carving and curvilinear shapes, as I already noted, in comparison to Sheraton style. Considered city furniture, Heppelwhite was especially popular in early American states along the eastern seaboard, from New England to the Carolinas. And there's a, some sort of awkward sentence there where I must have cut and pasted. Oh, I see woods used. Just your segue. Yeah, woods used in Heppelwhite-style pieces. Uh, oh, so we're still talking about Heppelwhite. I don't know why I had that. That uh, aside for Sheraton, we'll give him his due soon enough. We're we're Team Sheraton. We're, we are Team Sheraton, yeah. So his Heppelwhite furniture is characterized by contrasting veneers and inlays depicting seashells or bellflowers. Pieces often contain more than one type of wood. For the base, mahogany was most often the wood of choice, but satin wood and maple were also popular. Hmm. So Heppelwhite's using mahogany. I don't know if I've ever really seen satin wood. Is it light like maple? I think maybe that real yellow wood that we saw might have mm. been satin wood. I think it has that sort of yellow um, color to it. Satin wood. Yeah. Other woods include sycamore, which I've heard is very difficult to work with. Oh. Yeah. That's some interesting figure, that's for sure. Yeah. Looks a little bit like a lace wood, mm-hmm. but very yellow. Hmm. There's also tawny satin wood. Mm. Like satin wood and rosewood. Well, that's a nice combination. That's in stock, 1870s. $5,200. That's cheap. I know. It's embarrassing, isn't it? Couldn't make it for, for four <laughs> times that. He's got a cameo in it with freaking painting, all gilded. <laughs> Jeez. 1870s, that's what? That's uh, Empire. Yeah, it, well, probably late Empire, yeah. Mm. Um, so, Heppelwhite, he's using contrasting veneers, mahogany. Did use some satin wood and maple as his base woods. He likes sycamore, tulip wood, birch, and rosewood um, because uh, they like to use the local woods at hand. Uh, American versions of Heppelwhite's designs can be made of ash or pine as well. I wouldn't like to see that. <laughs> Been using pine since before it was cool. <laughs> Heppelwhite legs and feet. In contrast to the popular curving cabriole legs of the earlier styles, such as Queen Anne and Chippendale, Heppelwhite pieces usually have straight legs. They can be square or tapered. I I really like the tapered leg. Mm -hmm. And often have reeded or fluted edges. That's what we were noting in the last uh, uh, couple of pictures. They were designed to imitate classical columns of Greek and Roman architecture. Some chairs and sofas have H stretchers, 
which are reinforcing pieces of wood that connect the legs to form the shape of an H. Yes, I didn't think I needed to add that in. But. <laughs> That's, yeah, classical columns. It's like the Doric on the outskirts of Hoboken. The yeah, the Doric building. You might have heard of that apartment building. It's pretty exclusive. Yeah, the Doric with the, the two uh, big Doric columns. Uh, yeah, it's just different colored bricks. <laughs> Complementing the plain straight legs of a chair or table, Hepawite-style feet are usually simple. They usually take the shape of a rectangular spade foot or a tapered arrow foot. Bracket feet, however, are more common on larger, heavier case pieces such as chests, desks, bookcases, that kind of thing. Yeah, so those must have been spade feet that we were looking <coughs> at in the, mm-hmm. I think that was the first episode yeah. on the, um, uh, that was, was that the Seymour that had that? Um... I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So other characteristics of Heppelwhite stuff. Uh, it's plain legs, simple feet, uh, graceful, delicate appearance, especially light in comparison to Queen Anne and Chippendale styles. I, I, you know, I didn't really get that, like, especially light. Yeah. Especially the chairs. A little bit lighter, but not... I mean, like the carvings or, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe a little bit less. I, I think the backs of the chairs, is a, there's so much less material in the backs yeah. of the chairs. I think that's part of it. Uh, but the casework uh, is is the casework. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I do like how it's sort of set up there on a little bit uh, daintier legs. It kind of, it, it would... Lightens the appearance. A little less yeah. uh, uh, Jacobean. Yeah. <laughs> um, pieces are embellished with small carvings or painted designs. Again, we haven't really uh, had any um, pictures of those, along with intricate inlaid patterns and veneers. Yes, we've seen that often in woods of contrasting colors, known as marquetry. Marquetry. Mark would try. Uh, what else we got here for Heppelwhite stuff? This is how we can identify Heppelwhite. Common decorative motifs include graceful swags, curling ribbons and feathers, classical urns and trees. Yeah, we saw the uh, feathers and urn on the on the uh, chair drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's reflecting the popularity of the neoclassical styles during this period. Um, Heppelwhite introduced tambours into furniture design. Hmm. Uh, we know them now, you know, like any, like a, you'd see it in a roll top desk. Yeah. Everybody That's, wants it. Nobody wants to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we can make it, uh, you can, and they, of course you can buy it nowadays depending mm-hmm. on the species, but of they had to do it all by hand. They'd cut narrow vertical strips and glue it to a heavy cloth like canvas. Um, but the cool thing about doing it that way is you could really, you know, match the grain. You could put yeah. it back together, so to speak. Yep. Um, where you don't get that in in stuff that you would buy. I've always wanted to do that, like um, do a nice tambour where. 
it was made by hand on the cloth with continuous grain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen some guys. I haven't seen the process of them making it, but seen the finished product and yeah. And I did know here it's similar to the elements used on the later roll top desk. They used it to, you know, hide their writing supplies, mm -hmm. cubby holes, and things like that. Because these pieces, when everything was closed up, it was, it was neat. It's not like today's desk where you got your junk everywhere. <laughs> when you closed up shop, everything was inside your yep. desk. And then of course, you know, you had less stuff. There was no uh, uh, post-its and mm -hmm. you know, all this other junk that we all have now, staplers. Heppel white pieces have simple geometric shapes. Um, if it's curved, it's circular. Uh, the sofa and armchairs, they curve outward. Uh, and the seats have rounded fronts. Uh, if it's sheep, uh, sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Chair backs are shaped like ovals or shields. And uh, the shield back chair it's probably the best known of all Hepplewhite styles. We've we've seen several examples of that. Yeah, he's losing. That's where Hepplewhite loses me. Yeah, we're, we're not big chair. fans of that shield, are we? No. He's credited with popularizing the sideboard and the short chest of drawers. All right. Cheers to Hepplewhite. De designs for these pieces typically feature serpentine or bow front shaped. Bow front shape. Bow shape. Oh, I've lost it now. <laughs> or bow-shaped fronts. It's the lunch setting in. Yes. These were new forms of furniture in his day, according to American Furniture uh, by Jonathan L. Fairbanks. Mm, Fairbanks. Uh, that's a reader. You should you should pick that one up. It's a page turner. American Furniture, 1620 to present? Yeah. <laughs> so I'll let's... get that on Audible for when I go to sleep. <laughs> when I go to bed. <laughs> Let's take a look at the Heppel, Heppel White sideboard. All right. Yeah, it's a little bit un more understated than uh, some of the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like a solid top, right? Um, or is it? Well, I don't know. It's well, hard it's to maybe, tell. Maybe uh, some veneer work on the edge. Mm-hmm. We've got a knot right there. Very simple legs. Yeah. Slight taper. Just a slight taper on those. Sort of like a round, uh, round over kind of deal on the bottom. Yep. Does have that bowed front that they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, Not sure how I feel about big drawer over little drawer. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, especially when on the sides it's reversed. Right, and these are like, looks like the same height as this. Yeah, you got your your thin drawer over a door. It's weird. Yeah, Hepplewhite. He's I I do like the shape of the top. This must have been one of Alice's designs. <laughs> right. So I guess, I mean, technically, this isn't a Hepplewhite. Right, like not he didn't built by build Hepplewhite. It, yeah, no. it's I one guess of it's his, his design. Yeah, yeah. These are all Hepplewhite designs, and. They're going to be interpretations, too. Right. Because, uh, you know, who's following it? As you when, saw, when we go online and buy our plans to build all the stuff that we built. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you can see the plans are kind of rudimentary. There, there's, It's not like a set of measured drawings. It's, no. it's 
It's a, a pic. It's a drawing, a picture. Right, and this is I got in a, I won't say argument about this with my wife, when we're talking about Nick Disbro. She's like, oh, I wonder if if any of his plans are. I'm like, they didn't have plans back then. <laughs> like they might have had like shop drawings, but it's not like today yeah. where where you know you can go buy the Wood Whisperer plans and right. it says, all right, step one, cut these boards to this size, and then you know, blah blah blah. No, that. You you got the uh, you got this right. Okay, now build it. Right, exactly. Which is kind of what we do, mm-hmm. except we're making the drawing too. Right. So we do have the luxury of deconstructing it. Um, but typically, we we des- we design from the outside in, and then figure out how to. Bu- then we build from the inside out. You mm-hmm. know, we redraw it from the inside out. Yeah. I don't even do that. <laughs> it's like, okay, this, uh, we'll call that 60 wide and 18 deep. Yeah, we'll just we'll go from there. Yeah. So that's a nice piece. Yeah. Uh, Apple white style sideboard. Let's check this out. Mm. I like that better. Yeah. Much more rectangular, rectilinear. <laughs> um. And I would not have picked that out as being a Heppelwhite. No. See the inlays on the edges? Yeah, yeah. Little, Looks like little flowers or something there. Yeah, or those little quarter f- fans or whatever they call them. Yeah. Straight legs, little string inlay. More inlay here. I'd like to see the tools that they were using for all this veneer work, producing mm-hmm. the veneers and doing all of this marquetry. I mean, yeah, did they, I guess they had fret saws. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I tried. Um, you know, in uh, Duncan Five has a very famous toolbox, and I tried getting pictures of like the contents of it. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of saws and things like that, but um, nothing to display like a full array of his tools. Right. Yeah, it's a nice piece. What do you think of that hardware that keeps appearing on this stuff? These big round. Uh, yeah, not my favorite. No. They kind of have like an Asian look to me. Yeah. I mean, Chippendale did was influenced heavily by Chinese <coughs> furniture. That's true. So it could be bleeding bleeding over from that. That's right. I mean, these guys didn't exist in a vacuum. Um, Chippendale was wildly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, his book. And successful, so. Yeah. So you know that these guys definitely had copies of Chippendale's book. Yeah, it's like now. Everybody's a copycat. And did this say by Seymour? Uh, No, Hebblewhite Wardrobe, it's okay. a, I think. Wow. Okay. Uh, It just says it just Wardrobe. Says wardrobe. Yeah, so it's a Hebblewhite Wardrobe. The Lion, the Witch, and the Hebblewhite Wardrobe. This is that. nice. Yeah. This uh, reminds me a little bit of um, some of that later colonial stuff. How do you like how the grain comes off the doors into the styles and rails? From the down here in these drawers, yeah. And, and the, the panels, yeah. Look how it radiates out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some nice raised panels. Almost like a sunburst effect. Mm-hmm. 
This is all quadruple book matchup here, it looks like. Yeah. So that's interesting. That must be veneers on the rails and styles to get the grain going that direction, huh? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're not seeing any, like, cathedral on these, so it's... Looks like it's going sideways. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, and look at the the drawers. Yeah, I mean, this has got to be at least 36 inches wide, no? Yeah, yeah. Seeing bracket feet on this one, like a, sitting on a little pedestal of bracket feet. Almost looks like a chest on chest or a, a cabinet on chest or something. Yeah. Got some interesting, like, radius here. Mm-hmm. That's as big as it gets, but that or there's, like, a transitional molding here. That's possible, too. Yeah, I like that piece. I like the wood. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I really... Has some painted sort ah. of frieze up here. Yeah, yeah. The little stubby crown. Yeah, the the top is a little small by today's standards, I would say, right? Yeah, you throw like a seven-inch cove up there. <laughs> no. I saw a tile guy that I know, a local guy, <laughs> posted some pictures of, you know, doing backsplash in a kitchen and, like, <laughs> I wanted to comment on it. Like, who designed this kitchen? It's like there's a single, like, 12-inch wide upper. Oh, no. And then, like, an open corner with two L-shaped floating shelves, same depth as the thing, like, tucked into this, like, crammed in the corner, you know, with another run of uppers. Mm -hmm. And it, there's, like, a 7-inch cove on it. It's just, like, this huge oh, hat no. on this tiny little <laughs> cabinet. This looks so bad. Oh, my God. And the thing is... The guy who put it up might have thought it looked ridiculous too, but the you know the people go, I want all the storage I can. Can't you put something here? Mm -hmm. He's gonna say, you know, it's gonna look silly up there by itself. No, I want it. No, the sad part is I'm sure the person <laughs> who designed the kitchen thought it looked great. That's the sad part. Yeah, and the client just the client long said, for the ride. That that kind of looks like an orphan up there. They probably like it too. <clears throat> That's reminiscent of the piece we made. Yeah. Proportionally, for sure. Yeah. You know, he split the doors into a double panel with a yep. with a mid style, but yeah, similar proportions and and uh, definitely some design cues there. You know, with this transition thing mm -hmm. going here, bracket feet. We have three doors down here, but. Yeah, the piece we made is a little bit bigger, probably. Now this, uh, contrary to a lot of what else we've seen, looks like it's overlay. Yeah. The top is definitely overlay because they're butt hinges. You're right. Um, but these drawers look like they overlay the case. Oh, yeah. Those, that, those doors fold back all the way, probably. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, <laughs> run into that a time or two. <laughs> Mm. Maybe they do. Maybe, yeah. We no, they no. You never know. Yeah, we might, we might be seeing that piece pretty soon. <laughs> might be going up there to put the hardware on it. About time. 
so we're we're still talking about George Heppelwhite. Uh, I have some uh, notes here about later Heppelwhite styles. Um, British furniture manufacturers began reviving Heppelwhite designs in the 1880s. Hmm. Uh, so that really not that long after his death, though they're themselves antiques now. The construction is usually not as solid as that found in older pieces nor is the decoration quite as finely detailed in these mass-produced reproductions. Yeah, you start to see the uh, oh, the my. Industrial Revolution the rear its ugly head. Yeah. It's a, it's a Heppelwhite knockoff that began right after he's in the grave. I mean... Not a Heppelwright, it's a Heppelwrong. Yeah. The Kittinger Furniture Company of Buffalo, New York, became known for its faithful Heppelwhite repros in the 1920s and 30s. Made of high-quality woods, some of these pieces have become collectibles in their own right. Take care not to confuse these reproductions with older and more valuable period pieces. Hmm. Yeah, they're a period of their own. Yeah. In a sense, Heppelwhite furniture has never gone out of style. Recognizable features such as the, the shield back, fluted legs, serpentine front remain standard in traditional furniture design. That's, I mean, it's true. We've seen it in in everything from, from nice custom work to, you know, the crap you'll find at Macy's or something. Yeah. Um, these pieces are often considered to be classics that easily fit in with a variety of decorating styles. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's the one thing I've thought of as I've been, uh, you know, going through these pictures and stuff, you see all like the the classic design cues and how they're implemented in today's like yeah. junk furniture. Yep, and how it's they'll take a piece from here to piece from there, not stick it together. Like, yeah, this kind of looks like something Grandma used to have, right? <laughs> Could be yours, <laughs> and we got free delivery. All right, next next up. Is Thomas Sheridan now? So he's born 1751, dies 1806. Um, hey, he was young. Yeah, and he's uh, about 25 years younger than uh, Heppelwhite. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are contemporaries, but sort of different generations. Sheridan's a furniture designer, one of the aforementioned big three English furniture makers of the 18th century. Don't forget Chippy Chippendale. Let me see. Tommy C. Not to be confused with Tommy G. <laughs> That's right. Sheridan gave his name to a style of furniture characterized by a feminine refinement of late Georgian styles and became the most powerful source of inspiration behind the furniture of the late 18th century. I've, I read it time and time again that Sheraton's work was the most copied. Um, really? In, in, a, in a good way. Like right. you know, he, he wrote those, that book, and his influence was the broadest. <clears throat> uh, like uh, the other guys, even though that we're talking about American furniture, these still are uh, native Brits. Sheraton was born in Stockton-on-Tees, County Durham, England. Oh, they're a Durham County boy. Yeah, yeah. 
Nowadays, there's a pub named after him there. Mm. That's a high honor. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. One of the leaders and preachers of the Stockton Baptist Church, and he preached also during his travels. I always assumed Baptist was an American invention. Um, yeah, was it? I don't know. No, because the Anabaptists, um, they were they were uh, an early Protestant religion. It was mm-hmm. they were the people that just believed you had to be baptized as an adult. I think like was, a second time. Uh, well, yeah, that it didn't count because you were too young. Uh, that's why. Like you shouldn't. Like you didn't need to be baptized as a baby. Yeah, because what the hell did you know? You're yeah, right. That was that was one of their points. You gotta shed that original sin though. <laughs> you gotta get right. that off your back. Um well Sheridan was actually apprenticed to a local cabinet maker and uh worked as a journeyman until he moved to London in seventeen ninety at the age of thirty-nine. Yeah, well, eleven like uh fifteen years before he died. Right. So that's old at that time. I mean, he was he was a journeyman cabinet maker. Working for somebody else until he's thirty nine, till like three quarters of his life is gone. Maybe it wasn't that good. Well, apparently he had something to say. <laughs> up because, until that point, yeah, that's right. There he set up as professional consultant and teacher, teaching perspective, architecture, and cabinet design for craftsmen. Mm. I'm I'm sensing some otherworldly intervention coming up here. Could be. It is not known how he gained either the knowledge or the reputation which enabled him to do this, but he appears to have been more have been moderately successful. It's like so, the pyramids. Yeah. How does he go from just working for somebody to becoming a consultant and a teacher? That sounds like smoke and mirrors. Yeah, I don't know. It's an old fake it till you make it scenario. Well, Listen, just one year later, he publishes, he publishes the first of four volumes of the Cabinet Makers and Upholsterer's Drawing Book. <laughs> just about stealing <laughs> yeah. the title. Because it was Cabinet Maker and Upholsterer's Guide. Guide, yeah. And also that was also published in, in 1791. I'm telling you, he was looking at... Alice Heppelwhite, he's like, this bitch, Heppelwhite yeah. died. Now she's putting out all these drawings. I got to ride this train, make some of this money. Well, listen to this. At least 600 cabinet makers and joiners subscribed to his book, and it was immediately widely influential over a large part of the country. They probably thought it was a Heppelwhite book. <laughs> yeah. They're like, this is the third Heppelwhite release. Got to yeah. get it. Or the fourth. Well, it's a weird story because during this time, he doesn't even have his own workshop. And it's believed that he never even made any of the pieces shown in his book. He's a content creator. <laughs> oh, All he did was create the content. <laughs> and look at the justice. He becomes the biggest one of them all. Yeah. Like Heppelwhite, no pieces of furniture have ever been traced to... Uh, What's his face? Uh, Sheraton directly. So a piece of furniture described as being by Sheraton really means it's his design and mm-hmm. he's not the maker of the piece. I mean, we joke, but 
regardless of, I'm I'm sure they were his designs. I mean, that's almost harder than actually building something for me, at least. Yeah. The design part is the hard part. The making it's the easy part. So I mean, that's even more impressive to be able to design all these things and and. Uh... Oh yeah, I mean it's a it's another skill set, and uh, he obviously had had something there to give mm-hmm. um because it was kind of instant success yeah 600 people that's pretty good um and you know his name certainly lives on in 1803 he published the cabinet dictionary mm. a compendium of instructions on the techniques of cabinet and chair making then a year before his death in 1805, he published the first volume of The Cabinet Maker, Upholsterer, and General Artist Encyclopedia. Wow. I tell you, there was nobody giving them any artistic help on the titles of these books. Yeah. So Sherrington's names associated with the styles of furniture fashionable in the 1790s and early 19th century. That's the early 1800s. Many of the designs are based on classical architecture, knowledge of which was an essential part of a designer's technical education. Yeah, think about that nowadays. Not all the drawings are of his own design. He acknowledged that some of them came from works in progress in the workshops of practicing cabinet makers, Mm. but he was a superb draftsman, and he set his name on the style of the era. That must have come from an English website, the way draftsman is spelled. <laughs> oh, yeah. Draftsman. Yeah. That's a, that's right. That's like how they would spell, like, draft, you know, beer. So let's check out a Sheraton-style sideboard. He was such a popular designer, they named the hotel after him. <laughs> that's right. A chain. That's nice. Yeah, it Looking is nice. Looking like walnut. Really nice. Got a little uh, reverse uh, cathedral over here. Mm -hmm. I like this little alcove in the top. You can see the Sheraton, see his legs compared to the, because that's the same detail in the last Sheraton Mm -hmm. examples, where they kind of have that um, sort of, uh, I mean, how would you describe that? Bell-shaped or? Yeah, like a. Yeah. Turned taper. Yeah. I mean, it's got reeds, but it's got that sort of that bulb of a. Yeah, but the top. Yeah. And all these, you know, little urn kind of things mm-hmm. in between. Yeah. See again here for uh, short grain on these rails. Yeah. So it must be veneer. Yeah, definitely. I would love to get a, like a, that's really nice. Are Those these are drawers, drawers? Probably, yeah. Looks very shallow on this one. Maybe this yeah. is just fixed and these are drawers, but they, they might even be doors. I was going to say, I'd love to get a look at those doors, like open up the door and look at the, the work where there's that short grain veneer on there. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if, I know there's places where you can go and see stuff like this. I wonder if there's a place where you can go and actually touch them. Probably not. Yeah. People are jerks. They'd ruin it. 
We'll just tell them who we are when we show up. <laughs> Say, oh, yeah, we're Green Street Johnny. Come on in. We got the white gloves ready. Yeah, no vacuum press there. Yeah, wow. I mean, look at this. This piece of veneer is insane. I know. And to think it's, you know, 200-year-old piece of furniture, you know, and more. These almost look like little owls. Yeah, you're right. I think maybe these are those bell flowers that they're talking about. We've got the same top detail here. Thin tops, definitely a characteristic of this yep. period. You know, this top's got to be, I don't know what this overall thing is, but that's got to be a half, half inch, inch up there. Yeah. Little rounded at the bottom of the foot, right? Yeah. I think this with tapered square legs. That, that'd do it for you. Maybe nix these things. Yeah, you could see that anywhere, right? Yeah. I I like how these are sitting up on the, the legs. I like that proportion. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll get a chance to submit something like that. Well, I drew that uh that console that ended up getting nixed and it got revised to that mm -hmm. walnut thing with the green paint. Remember that? Yeah. Well, the first thing I drew was was like a low slung console that had the legs all the way up to the top like this yeah. and on the four corners. And they were, I think, round tapered. Nice. Or no, they were octagons. Oh. Tapered octagons. Yeah. And then um, there was some kind of detail with the top. I think the top, oh, the top was sitting up and then it had that big undercut chamfer. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about it like anybody who's listening knows the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> That's, they're just, they're just they go, oh, to yeah, our yeah. own conversations. Yep. <laughs> now, this is completely different. Yeah. This looks like it's like in a hotel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I like, I mean, I, I wouldn't like it for my home, but I like the the circular veneer, you know, yeah. and then there's the... With the keyhole at the top. Yeah, you can see how they have like the mitered, you know... Oh, veneer here, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Horizontal grain here. Mm -hmm. String inlay. But this one's got like that serpentine kind of front. Oh, there we go. It's a nice high res picture. That must be the spade foot. Yeah. A little bit thicker top. Mm hmm. Maybe, Ooh, maybe three yeah. quarter. Simpler. Um, Looks like heavy gloss on the top. Yeah. Better. It's really dusty. But, I mean, executing those that that S curve with the drawers and the doors. Yeah, you've got two concave doors and a convex drawer. I mean, I wonder See how they made cut there. Made those curves. I mean, I wonder what the core of those curved parts is. Must be coopered, you know, stave yeah. core with veneer. And then I guess they have. They must have positive and negative forms That's for it. the pressing. And, I mean, these are labor-intensive 
things to build with, you know, rudimentary tools, rudimentary compared to what we have now. Right. Even, I mean, in a simple shop like ours, we have so many more advantages. Yeah. Yeah. I like um, the pulls in the center of the door. I mean, that's another nice touch. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, compare back to that first one just for a quick second. I mean, it doesn't even look like it comes from the same guy, does it? No. I much prefer this first one, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one looks almost like a sewing cabinet or something. Yeah, this is a little too Queen Anne for me. Yeah. You know, with this... uh I don't know, this big, tall center section and the geometry of it. Yeah, that's sweet. Look like little robots. Yeah. Four of them. So, we're going to go to the third of our uh, big three, Duncan Fife. Um, oh, a Scotsman. Yeah, yeah. And he's even younger, born in 1768. So when did the other guys die? Uh, 18... Was, was it in the 1800s? I know that yeah. Sheridan was. Right. Uh, I think um, I think Heppelwhite died in the 1700s, didn't he? 1788, I think he died. 1786, Heppelwhite died. Yeah. Sheridan, 1750. 1806, he died. All right. So, um, Duncan Fife. He was 20 when Heppelway died, Duncan Fife. Scottish immigrant, comes to the U.S. with his family in 1784. So, he's just under 20. He's, uh, what, 16? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's two years before Heppelway died. Yeah. Um, he apprenticed in a cabinet maker shop in Albany, New York, before moving to New York City. Hmm. In the early 1800s, Fife had established Fife had established a furniture making shop that catered to wealthy customers along the eastern seaboard. Nice going, Duncan. Yeah, smart move. <laughs> Today, the name Duncan Fife is almost synonymous with high craftsmanship and refined style. Uh, so, why is Fife's furniture so celebrated? He didn't invent a new furniture style but he displayed great skill in blending elements of popular and fashionable European styles into finely made furniture for America. <laughs> All right. So unlike uh, Sheridan and Heppelwhite, he's really not forging any new paths, but right. uh, as I said before, um, Fife's been known to carry out those, those designs by the, Apple White and Sheraton to the highest order. He he created the best furniture that those guys put on paper. Right. Uh, Fife actually built it. Uh, Fife successfully used a factory approach to making furniture. Uh-oh. So his works <laughs> weren't specifically carved or made by him alone. His workshop, at its height, hired over 100 skilled craftsmen 
who made a wide range of furniture. The Duncan Fife inventory included armchairs and side chairs, dining room sets, side tables, card tables, sofas, large cabinets, and secretaries. So he's a go-getter. Yeah. I mean, all these guys, obviously the people who history has remembered, mm-hmm. they're the people who, um, you know, made the biggest mark, left the biggest footprints. Um, Fife had a careful eye towards style refinement dedicated to high-quality materials. Uh, to ensure the best finished product, he established quality craftsmanship in all steps of the process in his factory. So he was like a very uh, um, hands-on executive chef. Yeah. Going through, making sure everything was just right. He carefully aged his woods before using them. Uh, You know, not eliminate, but uh, less prone to cracking. And it's his excellence in making the furniture as well as his specific style that made him so popular. Duncan Fife. Yeah, so um, his execution as well as his interpretation of the styles of the day. Uh, but one thing Fife didn't do is label his furniture. Hmm. So to identify authentic pieces, you need to know what to look for. Let's check out a Fife armchair. Not what I was expecting. I've seen that style of chair. Had no idea it was a Duncan Fife. Yeah, it seems. Uh, oh man. Well, you see, he's he did all kinds of stuff as we just read, and this reminds me. I'm not an expert on it by any means, but it does uh, call to mind Empire, the Empire period, mm-hmm. uh, because that's sort of like Egyptian there. Yeah. I think that's some of the influences that start coming through. Little, like, brass claw feet. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the, you know, those the, the half circle on the half circle. Yeah, it's a little bizarre. Looks like a half lap right here. Yeah. And this is integral. goes all the way up to the, uh, the, the back of the chair. And we see the caning come back again. Yeah, these are all, like, fluted. Uh, Apron on the, or read it on the yep. seat. It's quite a mishmash of the things we've been reading about. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I hate this chair. <laughs> <laughs> it is ugly. It kind of, it, it looks like two it looks designs like folk stuck art. together, doesn't it? This, I hate this stretcher right here. It, like, you got these square yeah, with taper and then this turn thing right here, and then the reeded thing transition pieces right there. Yeah, and then what's up with this carving here? Yeah, it's really odd, isn't it? Yeah, and what's up with these little feet? <laughs> this guy was a mad scientist. Yeah, back yeah. like we had some technical <clears throat> difficulties here. And we don't know if we lost the first hour of the show, but <laughs> if we did, you're only getting 10 minutes. Oh, God. So we're looking at the Fife armchair. Yeah, we were, we were sort of laughing at it because it's it's kind of a goofy looking thing. Yeah. And, and listen to this. The Duncan Fife style. In a general sense, Duncan Fife furniture is known for its balance, 
harmony and proportion. All elements of a piece of work, all elements of a piece work together to create a pleasing, refined whole. Now that, that chair, come on. Yeah, it's a little yeah. iffy. Individual furniture objects don't look too clunky or awkward or have elements that seem out of place. This is exactly the opposite of what our opinion is. Yeah, it's the antithesis that chair. Yeah. Fife was a successful businessman who adopted elements of new styles as they became fashionable. So there isn't one cohesive style that always shows in a five piece. Rather, there are certain elements that reflect his quality of manufacture and refined eye. Uh, Fife tended to make pieces from high-grade hardwoods like mahogany or rosewood. Mm. Yeah, so details might be done in precious metals like ivory. Oh, geez. Or gilt brass, which is brass coated in a thin layer of gold. Surfaces might be decorated with veneers or different colored and patterned hardwoods. And uh, veneers are paper. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> some, some pieces, some What's pieces, a veneer? some pieces were upholstered in durable material like d- damask, which had defer- decorative <laughs> patterns woven into its surface. Man, I was on such a roll. <laughs> Freaking computer. Yeah. Um, here's a, a little thing that interested me: that Duncan Fife is interred or buried at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Mm. Yeah. So. Uh, I've driven past Greenwood Cemetery many, many times. I hope they buried that chair with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, on October 15th of 1922, the Metropolitan Museum of Art opened furniture from the workshop of Duncan Fife, and it was the first exhibition ever held in an art museum on the work of a single cabinet maker. Hmm. 90 years later, and for only the second time in history, a major retrospective of this iconic American craftsman and his furniture was again on view from the 20th of December in 2011 to May 6, 2012, under the title Duncan Fife, Master Cabinet Maker in New York. Uh, Fife's furniture can be admired in the White House, Green Room, Edgewater, I'm not sure where that is, Roper House, and especially at Milford Plantation, owned by the Classical American Homes Preservation Trust. Mm. His furniture appears in many museums and private collections as well. Well, There's even more sideboard attributed to Fife. We got a fun fact. Yeah. Let's check out this sideboard. Maybe he redeems himself. Oh. Yeah, not bad. You could see it's it's definitely similar, but it's it's moving away from that uh, federal style that we've been viewing. Yeah, um, really, he's you know he's younger, still has that that contrasting wood, yeah, that the stringy. inlay, the string inlay, the the brass is a oval the Curved front, mm-hmm. the tapered legs. That's, That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, fun fact: one of the largest roadside attractions in the U.S. 
is a giant chair located in Thomasville, North Carolina. And I saw a picture of this. It's a huge, it's like one of those things from the 60s. Mm-hmm. But I guess this was erected in 1950. Uh, there's a monument erected in 1950, and the plaque located on its pedestal reads as follows. This chair is an exemplar and inspiration for future generations to emulate and perpetuate the achievements of our time-honored furniture designers and craftsmen. Mm. The original chair was the creation of the famous American designer, Duncan Fife. And uh, that chair was actually recreated in uh, 1959. Um, man, this is a long section. Yeah. Well, that's the last yeah. time. So the, the fourth member, they, he didn't, they didn't make it into the big three, uh, were John and Thomas Seymour. Now this is that uh is similar to that piece yeah. we saw earlier. Yeah, these guys. These guys had it going on. Yeah, no, this is nice. It also is a, just a better picture, but Mhm. But I I really like their interpretation. Yeah, that's beautiful. Now this is probably the same maple that's, you know, Maybe burned a little bit, mm-hmm. the, the, the figure on it. Really, really nice. The detail around the mirror. Yeah. Um, nightstand. Wow. Uh, this one's not doing it for me as much. I wonder what that top is. Some it kind of like, stone, yeah. right? It almost looks like an old, like, 1940s radio. Yes. Yeah. Very, it's like a like a square, small square chest on little pencil legs. Yeah. It's a little odd. A little bit. Seems a little impractical. But I guess as a nightstand. Ah, there it is. It's in the, yeah, it's in the like picture that. with that nightstand. I think, uh, you know, I'd prefer if these had wood tops. Mm-hmm. This, this is, is a, cool. This looks very Georgian or uh, federal. Sorry. Yeah. Fed, George. Whatever. Martha. Sheridan. <laughs> Same thing. Sideboard. Wow, that looks almost like the five piece. Yeah, and there was a Heppelwhite, I think, or a Sheridan yeah. that had the same, basically, a uh, basic layout mm-hmm. with this big. But that last five piece that we kind of like mm-hmm. more than you know, much more than the chair, of course. It was like a sim. It was like a simpler version of this. Yeah, with yeah. just stringing, really. It had like a two tone thing with dark in the center, light on the sides. Look at the grain going from the door to the drawer on the sides. Yeah. You know, hmm. really, really nice. Nice little, uh, like a binding on the mm-hmm. top. Um, again, the fairly substantial pieces of furniture, uh, up raised up on legs mm-hmm. on small, thin legs. And there's a tambour desk. Hmm. This pediment, yeah. I, I do not like that, but I'm not crazy about that pediment. With this big. 
vinyl on the top. Um, I don't know where you sit when you, I mean, I guess we think of it differently. It's got, well, look. Does that pull out? Oh, yeah, that's a hinge it's top. A look at that. It's a flipper flopper. And this drops down, the little keyhole. That is cool. <laughs> In the picture, it says, do, do not, not touch. touch. <laughs> <laughs> These guys were craftsmen, the Seymours. Uh, yeah. You can definitely see their style and in interpreting. Um, they need some more uh, credit. Yeah, so um, this last bit I remember is a little anecdote. Um, a card table that uh, was bought by Claire Wegman Beckman for $25. Uh, proved to be a good investment. It was sold at Sotheby's yesterday for $541,500. I'm flying, Ms. Wigman Beckman, 71 years old, said, after the Sotheby's annual Important American Furniture Auction uh, folk art sale. The retired teacher bought the table more than 30 years ago at a garage sale and displayed it in her home in Bergen County, New Jersey. Wow. I've always been a garage sale enthusiast, she says, but I never expected to get this much for anything. Uh, Israel Sack Inc., a New York dealer of fine American antiques, bought the table, which was one of six made by the Boston furniture maker John Seymour and Son. I think uh, Israel Sack is some sort of source material for the early American. Huh. The meticulously constructed table has its original finish and considered to be in good condition. Wow. Very interesting. I think John and Thomas Seymour, to me, were the are the standouts of uh Yeah, they at least what we saw. But maybe like you said, it's the design work that what they weren't able to set themselves apart with. They were interpreters, but so was Duncan Fife. Yeah, and I don't know. I didn't like that place stuff. It's funny how time remembers things, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's kind of clear to us that we like the Seymour's stuff and, and their work just pops mm -hmm. compared to the other guys. It, ju it just jumps off the screen compared to anything we saw from... Everybody else. Yeah, I mean, the Sheridan stuff was, I liked, but <clears throat> I like the Seymour stuff a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even his interpretations of the Heppelwhite and Sheridan work. I mean, this thing is great. Yeah. It's like they they take the best parts of it. Yeah, well, well... Um, before my computer, uh, you know, spits out and deletes this part of the podcast too, we better sign off for the week. Yeah. Um, it's been a joy. Yeah. Go get yourself some vesting finish. Seems to be the way we end every, every podcast now. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I mean, it's something we use, uh, I wouldn't say on a daily basis. Because we don't finish every day, but mm -hmm. it it's basically the only finish we use if we're 
you know, doing the clear finish. Yeah, I mean, it has. We use the uh, the vesting single coat and the LED. Have, it's the only thing that we've used since October. It's, yeah, early October. So we've been using it a lot. I tell you, I missed having that LED uh, on the last thing we did. Yeah, matching up with the old, uh, matching up with Rubio mm-hmm. that we've used, you know, uh, previously for some rework on the job. But yeah. So when's this? Uh, when's this episode air? It's twenty twenty two by this time, isn't it? Yeah, first uh, be the first Friday in twenty twenty two. All right, everybody, yeah. enjoy the new year. Yeah. And we'll see you next week for the last episode of the uh, federal period. Yeah. Episode 16, 17, 16. Something like that. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next week. Where's my fucking mouse?